If we are faithless, He remains faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. You ever watch curling? Curling. Now, I'm not talking about like when a woman curls her hair, or when you're doing curls in the gym. I'm talking about the Olympic sport. And it's kind of shocking to me that this even is an Olympic sport, because it literally involves sweeping, you know, and buffing the floor. I mean, if that's a sport, then curling your hair might as well be, I feel like. And you got the sweeper going ahead of the little, uh, like the cue, or uh, the stone, I don't know what you call it. I call it a Roomba, because that's what it looks like to me. Well, there's little automatic vacuums. I mean, the whole, the whole thing just feels so like Martha Stewart, you know? And I don't know why I'm so fascinated by curling. I guess it just seems so foreign and strange. You know, if it were possible to apply the word exotic to anything to have come out of Canada, I would have to say that curling is pretty exotic. Uh, this is the visual that came to my mind in meditating on our collect for this morning about God's grace preceding us and following us. I just have this visual of the sweeper going on ahead of the stone and the one who threw it kind of sliding behind with his momentum. Uh, this is what I want to talk with you about today, God's grace going before us and following after us, both making it possible for us to journey towards heaven and to have the strength to endure along the way. And I want to explore this with you both from the human side and from God's side, seeing how God's faithfulness is the solution to our faithlessness. Both of these aspects of grace, um, going before and following after, were articulated by St. Augustine. He argued that because of the fall, our hearts needed to be healed if we're to ever choose God. And this healing enabling us to do uh, the right thing comes from God. This kind of grace which goes before is called prevenient. But Augustine also argued that because we're fickle and we often stray from God, we would also need, need God's grace if we were to ever endure. And we call this persevering grace, the grace to keep us on the right course until the end. So, God has opened to us the gates of heaven, and along the way, He besets us behind and before, as the psalmist says. But in the same way that you can lead a horse to water but can't make it drink, in the same way, God's not going to bring anybody into heaven by compulsion. He respects the freedom of will with which He has created us. So, although He may coax and entice our wills by His grace, He never just engages in like a hostile takeover. Uh, He's like the curler who sweeps in order to guide the stone in a particular path, but he doesn't actually lay hold of it. So if God wants to direct us towards a particular virtue, he might enlighten our intellects so that we find the motivation. Or if he desires to harden Pharaoh's heart, what he would do is withdraw whatever supernatural assistance he may have given. But at the end of the day, the choice is always profoundly our own. In that way, God's grace is greatly ennobling. It grants us the dignity of agency. And a perfect example of this is the cleansing of the ten lepers, which we read about in our gospel for today. Rather than choose to heal them with the wave of his hand, our Lord desires for these men to get involved in their healing, and so he gives them away. Go show yourselves to the priests, he tells them, and it is as they go that they are cleansed. Jesus tells the man that returned, your faith has made you well, drawing attention to his human agency and his cooperation with grace. We are saved by grace alone, for without it we cannot choose God or persevere towards him, and yet God coaxes our wills in such a way that we may choose him freely, rather than God being the puppet master. 
This relationship between God's work and our work is also the theme of our Second Timothy passage. St. Paul writes to Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So there's a both and here. It's both the case that we have already died with Christ and our salvation is accomplished. And it's also the case that we must endure if we are to receive the crown of life. So there's a harmony here between what Christ has done and what we are to do. There's this tension between salvation as an event 2,000 years ago and as a process in the present. See, our religion teaches that Jesus' death on the cross was not his death only, but in a sense ours as well. In his incarnation, he took on the flesh of our fallen race, our human nature, in order to put its mortality to death upon the cross and to bestow upon it a new life in his resurrection on the third day. So, in a very real sense, Christ has brought us through death into a resurrected life already, and we possess the Holy Spirit as evidence of this. So, our deaths will not be permanent. There's an eternal life waiting for us on the other side of the cross, which is why the prayer book refers to death as merely the gates of larger life. Therefore, Jesus says, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And St. Paul here says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. So, if Christ's cross was ours, then his resurrection is ours as well. But just as the lepers had to step into their healing, so if we are to experience this new life for ourselves, we must obtain it. If we endure, Paul says, we will also reign with him. And worth noting is the fact that Paul writes this epistle to his protege during his final imprisonment. This is the last book of Holy Scripture which St. Paul penned before his martyrdom. When the apostle to the Gentiles writes about the need to endure, to present ourselves approved to God as workers uh, with no need to be ashamed, well, it's a live issue for him. He's writing in the face of his impending death for the sake of the gospel. This is a question of life and death for him. He could betray his, his faith and save his life in an earthly sense, or he could endure laying down his life in order to receive it in a heavenly sense. So would he betray the one whom he met on the road to Damascus, or would he persevere to the end? This is what he has in mind when he writes the words, if we deny him, he also will deny us. With this verse, it seems to mean that if we choose to walk away from God, he will allow us that choice. It's not that he's a harsh judge and will only love us if we love him, but that he will allow us the dignity of free will if we choose to go our own way. In terms of whether this could be called a denial, it's all a matter of perspective. Yes, if we deny him, he also will deny us. But I think this is a denial more so in perception than in reality. If we withdraw ourselves from him, of course we'll perceive him to be withdrawn from us. If we try to walk away from God, of course we won't perceive his presence. It really has more to do with us than him in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He remains present to us, though we absent ourselves from him. Therefore, to clarify this point, the text adds, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This past week at evening prayer, a few of us read a beautiful passage about the faithfulness of God to us, an unfaithful people. He spoke through his prophet Hosea, 
saying that his faithfulness is like an evergreen tree. In other words, his faithfulness is never out of season. And he says, I am the one who helps you. I will heal your faithlessness. After all our wanderings, God still looks upon us with mercy, with loving compassion, and a desire to heal. Though, like Gomer, we are unfaithful and stray from the relationship, he is our faithful husband who never gives up on us and remains always present in love. For he cannot deny himself. I love this line of St. Paul's. God cannot deny himself because God is love. If God ever seems hateful, it's because we misread his love and think in analogy to our own feelings. He cannot deny himself, and he is the one who loves you and gave himself for you. But there's another sense also in which God cannot deny himself, and that's because he identifies himself with you. Not only has he created you in his image and likeness, but in Christ he has taken on your very nature. So to deny you would be to deny himself. How can anyone hate his own flesh? Yes, it is true that Christ will say to those who do not the will of the Father, I never knew you, depart from me. But I do not think this is because a person would fail to measure up, but because that person, in effect, chose to tell God the same thing. If we don't do the will of the Father, in effect, we say, Lord God, I don't know you. Your ways are confusing to me. I don't understand. I would prefer to have you out of my life. Depart from me. And if we tell that to him in our actions, he will tell the same to us, giving us what we have asked for. So, Saint Louis, uh, so C.S. Lewis writes, hell is only locked from the inside, and it's for those who want to shut God out. But behold, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Perhaps you've run away from God in your own heart. Like your body may be in mass, but your heart may be far from him. Or you desire to shut him out of certain parts of your life. To you, St. Paul writes about endurance, about the crown which lies on the other side of the cross. He elsewhere writes about how runners race to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. So run, he says, that ye may obtain. It's never too late to return to him. His faithfulness is always in season. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. If you're like one of these ten lepers in our passage, who, you'll read, stood at a distance, then I commend to you the sacrament of confession. The lepers couldn't even approach Jesus because of their uncleanness, and so from this great distance they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And that can be our prayer, too, in approaching this wonderful sacrament. Jesus says to us, as well as he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. For he desires to get his words of forgiveness and healing into our souls. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. Augustine was right. Our good works are both enabled and upheld by God's grace, for he is ever with us. His grace proceeds and follows us. And though we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. May he who began a good work in you bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook. <laughs>